This is Pod Academy. I'm Ishan Kader. In this podcast, we will be discussing political dissatisfaction amongst white working classes in Britain, based on a study conducted in the northwest of England. We are joined by Dr. Nathan Manning from the Centre of Applied Social Research at the University of Bradford. I began by asking Nathan about his co-authored study called Them That Runs the Country. This paper came out of work that I undertook with Mary Holmes, who's soon to be based at the University of Edinburgh. And we were concerned about the rise of the increased success, if you like, of the BNP um, during the European elections in 2009. And so we did a, a quick and fairly small-scale piece of research to try and explore the views of potential BNP supporters in the lead-up to the 2010 election. So it was, it was quite a quick kind of piece of research. And we wanted to use qualitative interviews because research on electoral politics tends to be dominated by more quantitative sorts of approaches. So we used qualitative interviews with white working class people in Yorkshire and Lancashire, and we chose areas with high support for the BNP and or low turnout. So we we did interviews in Barnsley, Burnley, Doncaster and Hull, and we used a YouGov poll that had been done just after the European elections to try and match our sample to the people they identified as, as BNP supporters. And we went about asking people how they felt about politics, what they thought about politicians, the major parties, the BNP, of course, and the issues that they thought were important. And we also talked a bit about MPs' expenses. So I think we're used to thinking about public debate and concern over young people's disengagement from electoral politics and this idea that young people are apathetic. But we would argue that this masks a broader problem of adult dissatisfaction with electoral politics. But we don't have much data on what from citizens themselves as to why they're disengaged or why they're dissatisfied. And there, there are a, a number of different explanations for why people are dissatisfied and why they've, why they've disengaged. Political science tends to point to processes of depoliticization where various functions uh, that used to be within government have now been outsourced, if you like, to external bodies. So like the Bank of England is a good example of that. And this can lead to people perceiving politics as not as sort of ill-suited to being able to deal with our pressing problems, if you like. There's other kind of similar work which argues that citizens are increasingly positioned as consumers and politics tends to generate compromised and messy outcomes. And if we're positioned as consumers, then we inherently are going to be disappointed by these sort of compromised outcomes. There's other work that points to party convergence, which I think is particularly relevant in Britain, and the sense that there's no real choice between the parties. So that can drive down turnout as well. And I think all these things are, are important and they're relevant, but I think there's, there's more to it. And we would argue that sort of fundamentally, we think politics no longer is perceived as addressing the socioeconomic concerns of white working classes and, of course, other working people as well. But, but we were looking in particular at the white working classes. There's a profound sense of, of distance and separation between politics and politicians and, and everyday life. What kind of responses did you get whilst undertaking your research? Yeah, well, we had real difficulty uh, recruiting people for this project, and that was partly because we, we did lots of cold canvassing, so people didn't know us, and that makes it quite easy to say no. And we also approached people in workplaces, which, of course, can make it difficult as well. But mostly people didn't say, I'm too busy, I don't have time. Mostly they, they just said they're not interested and they don't want to talk to us about it. And that was even after we sort of impressed upon people that we, we wanted to talk to people that were not interested in politics. That was something we were looking for. 
the title of our paper actually came out of an attempt to recruit some people. So Mary, my co-author, approached some council workers and asked them to be involved in the study. And one of them said he didn't need to be interviewed. He could tell her what he thought about politics right away. And he said, then that runs the country, don't know what they're doing. That was quite a common experience when we were trying to get people to be involved. One of the key themes that came out of the work was that people, the people we spoke to were critically disengaged rather than being apathetic, rather than just not caring about politics. They had a whole range of criticisms. And some of the people we spoke to didn't vote or they only voted occasionally. And some of the, we did have a, a couple of people that were quite interested in politics as well. So we had a little spread there. They weren't all disengaged. So there were criticisms around the electoral system, problems with first-past-the-post. So a young woman, Doncaster, in a cafe earning minimum wage said, you probably know about Doncaster, it's quite a Labour stronghold. And you're like, well, what difference is my vote really going to make then? So, and that, that was a common kind of theme. There was also more general sort of cynicism. So uh, another person from, from Doncaster uh, who worked in a bar said, to be totally honest, I don't really understand much what does happen, you read about it, you hear about it on the news or whatever, it doesn't give you much faith or interest in wanting to get to know much about it. And he goes on to say, like I say, it's just so negative all the time, what you get to know about it, the different things you're hearing, especially lately with the expenses, he's talking about the expenses scandal. Just the whole politics world and everything surrounding politics and the people involved in politics, I just think it's quite dark. And you get this really strong sense of, he uses words like negative and dark and that it doesn't promote his interest or faith in politics. And just one, one last little excerpt, this sense of a, a, a profound separation between everyday life and, and people and politics and politicians. This woman, an older woman from, from Hull who was a courier, she talked about politics as being in a bubble. She says, my view is they're in government, they're in power, they're in Downing Street, and they're in this bubble of power, shall we say. And later on she talks about the election and she says... Most of us will just muddle along, won't we? We'll muddle along. We'll be in our own small world, trying, battling on to make a living. And the government people will, will just get on with what they're doing. And at some point, the two of us will meet. We'll get affected by the policies they put in. Where the fuel prices, where the fuel comes down in price remains to be seen. She, she laughs at that. Obviously, fuel is an important issue for her being a courier. But that, that sense of a separate sphere came through very regularly with our respondents. Okay, so you said that uh, your study was initially kind of uh, inspired in some ways by the by the rise of the BNP in in the northwest. Mm. How would you say the rise of the far right in the last few years has changed or harnessed the political concerns of the white working class communities that you that you kind of researched? Firstly, I think it's interesting to note how quickly politics changes. Um, we did this work in the lead up to the 2010 election. And, of course, the BNP had enjoyed recent success around that time. But after the election, they're no longer a political force. Um, we don't really talk about the BNP in the way that we did um, a few years ago. But, of course, at the local elections, we've seen the rise of UKIP, which, you know, obviously they articulate some of the same kinds of messages as the BNP, but they do it in different ways, and perhaps they tap into different parts of the electorate as well. So not to say that the right has sort of disappeared, but the BNP certainly has dissipated. I think it's also important to note the, the sort of general shift to the right uh, within mainstream politics, which of course began under New Labour. 
And there's research to show that attitudes harden towards welfare recipients, for example, under under New Labour. So it's not just the far right that sort of shaped these dynamics, but major parties and, and, and the media as well, of course. So in the leaders' debate of 2010, um, at least on one occasion, we saw the leaders trying to outdo each other on how tough they'd be on, on immigration and asylum seekers. By going back to our study, while our participants shared various characteristics with BNP supporters, most of them were either uninterested or quite critical of the BNP. Uh, they described the BNP as distasteful, as playing on people's fears, or wanting to incite riots, um, or just as too extreme. But we think that the gap left by Labour's shift to the right has meant that racist discourses have become the prominent way of explaining white working class disadvantage. So, if you like, the, the tenets of multiculturalism have been, been warped to serve claims that white people have been left behind. And this racialization of the white working classes pits a black them against a white us in partly imagined battles over jobs and resources. So one of our participants, a young woman who was a hairdresser, she was asked what she thought politicians should be working on and she says, it might sound a bit racist, but stopping others coming in, you know, and taking out, she doesn't finish that thought. I'm not a racist person, but they make me want to be when they get all the help and we don't. I think it's quite clear that she's trying to talk about class disadvantage, the way in which she articulates that quite racist. So you've touched upon what I would think are the two prevalent discourses of the last few years. First of all, the, the rise of a Islamophobic or a, a more general racist discourse in the media, which is also matched by a, a discourse against the white working class, uh, the issue of, of chavs or the issue of welfare dependency. How do you think these these discourses can be combated? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, um, and I'm not sure I've, I've got a, a great answer. I mean, the coalition have been really successful in demonising and dehumanising welfare recipients, and at the same time, people seem to largely accept the need for deep cuts in, in public spending. And of course, we're not hearing a strong counter-narrative from Labour. If things are to change, I think we need to develop new ways of talking about people's socio-economic concerns which don't pit groups, everyday ethnic groups or categories of deserving and undeserving against each other. We need perhaps a new kind of language around this sort of stuff. And I wouldn't hold my breath, but I do think there's a role for political leadership in combating these kinds of discourses. I mean, imagine if we had political leaders that talked about the positive contribution that migrants have made to Britain rather than always framing migration as a problem even at best it's just about some sort of management but it's usually much more negative than that. But at the same time I'm doing some other work on the use of public space in Bradford. Bradford has a fairly new public square um, and we're looking at how people use the space and it's very it's a very popular site with Bradfordians. And so I think sometimes there's a difference between uh, this level of discourse which is, is clearly there and I, I wouldn't want to sound too optimistic about this but because clearly there, there is a strong Islamophobic discourse and, and the discourses around chavs and welfare recipients has been really quite nasty. But at the same time, I think everyday life, there's, there's often a real conviviality that we see with everyday life and people sharing public spaces and rubbing up against each other and, and getting on with life. So I think sometimes that kind of the everyday reality of living in, uh, multicultural Britain isn't reflected in those sorts of discourses so there might be a bit of a, a gap between them if you like.
Okay, and this kind of refers to some of the points that you were making at the beginning, really, which is about how your respondents during your research talked about that, that gap between the everyday experience of their life and, and mainstream politics. Um, so do you think there is anything that can be done at the moment to bridge the gap between mainstream politics and the concerns of the white working class, or indeed the working classes in general? I mean, I think it's fair to say that we know, perhaps intuitively, but also from research, that dissatisfaction with mainstream politics isn't confined to the white working classes. There's quite recent research to show that you know, people are profoundly unhappy with electoral politics. On the political side of the equation, there needs to be political will to bridge this gap. Voter turnout was about 65% in the 2010 election, and as long as it doesn't drop below 60%, I don't really think the political elite are going to be trying to rock the boat to drive up voter turnout. So it's a bit hard to see where the political will will come from at that level. Um, but I also don't think that sort of more moderate changes are necessarily going to do it either, you know, tweaking, making voting more accessible, if you like. I mean, I think those sorts of things are important. Perhaps if, if being on the electoral roll, as I think they're planning to do, isn't tied to residency, you know, so that if you move house, it's, it's easier to stay on the roll. I think those things are important. But I don't think they're really going to profoundly reshape the way working class people relate to politics. I think people need to feel that politics is relevant to their lives. And it's not, as uh, Elizabeth, one of our participants said, it's not this separate bubble of power. People f need to feel that, that politics is there for them. And that, you know, I really don't think that that's the case. It seems to me, certainly, that the demise of, for example, trade union structures and perhaps more broadly the left has also been quite incapable of, of filling this gap between everyday political concerns and political will and representation. I think it leaves a gap where organisations, and not electoral organisations like the BNP, but organisations like the EDL, for example, that are enjoying a huge amount of renewal in support uh, this, mm. this year especially, that allow that, that politicisation to occur outside the domain of mainstream electoral politics and is expressed in a kind of quite virulent, angry and aggressive strain of, of street politics. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I mean, there's no doubt that <clears throat> some of the older structures that used to marshal and, and channel our political efforts towards electoral politics um, are no longer no longer exercise the same force that they did and I mean it's it's in some ways I, I take your point about the EDL but in some ways it's interesting to think that um, at an electoral level we, we haven't seen radical politics in Britain as we we have in in other parts of Europe and I you know, I mean, it's it's an open question as to to whether this will will change. I guess, but it certainly could with with further economic shocks. And you know, I mean, I think it's interesting that broadly, the public have been fairly accepting of you know really dramatic public spending cuts. But as they continue to bite and economic growth continues to be sluggish, the pressure will continue, and and we could see some some real resistance flourishing. But at times, I think it can be very hard to see where that's going to come from. And on the and on, as you say, on the right, we do we do have flare-ups of of really nasty and really violent protests from particularly from groups like the EDL. That was Dr. Nathan Manning. Thank you for joining us at Pod Academy. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and please visit. Pod
www.podacademy.org to listen to a diverse range of academic podcasts from the arts, social sciences and sciences. Thank you.